Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, a familiar story at the heart of Christmas, Luke 2, verses 8 to 14. My title this morning is The Christmas Sign, the definitive sign of Christmas that was given to the shepherds. Last Sunday, I spoke about the times and seasons of Christmas, and with every time and season, there is a sign that lets you know the season is here. What was the sign that the shepherds received? Verse 8. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. Signs of the season. I wonder what was the first sign that you saw that reminded you that Christmas was coming. It might have been the commercial signs, it might be the decorative signs, or all the things that come to make the public celebration of Christmas so familiar. Well, in, in our home, we have a sign. We don't do it religiously or necessarily every year, but most years, this is the sign. I buy an Advent candle, you know, the one that counts down to Christmas. You start at December 1st and it burns all the way down. This year in particular was, was a privilege because in our staff outing day, we went to visit Windsor Castle. Oh no, she wasn't at home. But in the gift shop, there's so many good... Are you like that? I, I love to visit the gift shops and I'm, I become a typical tourist. And Anyway, I did walk away with this beautiful royal Advent ca candle. So, burnt it down. When that candle is lit, it's official in the Dye household, Christmas is on the way. Now, there was no pre-warning for these shepherds. The great use of the word suddenly, which means out of nowhere, unexpected, quite unwaited for, the angel appeared and made this announcement, the proclamation coming from the angel and say, don't be afraid, I've got good news for you. This very day is born to you in the city of David, a savior who is the Christ and who is the Lord. And then there's this great angelic heavenly celebration. Now, the question that might have immediately occurred to the shepherds once they got over all of this was, whoa, how will we know him? Where, what, 
how will we find him? How will we identify him? And I suppose if we just paused for a moment there, freeze-framed that, there could be all kinds of ways in which they, and indeed we, would look for the signs. I mean, very important person. Don't, don't forget this. It's very, very clear. He is the Savior, the Christ, and the Lord. Meaning, this isn't even just the Messiah that they were expecting, not understanding that this Messiah was, was none other than the Son of God, none other than God manifested in the flesh, but the angel's announcements show from the very beginning that was the content of Christian faith. The divinity of Jesus and his role of saviour, sacrificial death, these things were not invented by some generation following these early days. They were there from the very beginning, even though I believe the disciples and certainly the shepherds would not have understood the full significance of it. But to be sure, from the day of the resurrection onwards, it all made sense. This who was amongst us is no ordinary man, no mere prophet. This is the Son of God, God himself, manifested in the flesh. Now, if there was a very important person coming, uh, you would expect that there might be receive a civic welcome or the ancient equivalent of a state visit. Certainly, if I was around, I would have gone looking for the nearest and best five-star hotel. I wouldn't bothered with the junior suites, the executive suites. I would have gone straight for the presidential suite. That's what I was thinking of. It reminds me of a story, which true story, when Reinhard Bonke was ministering uh, in a gospel meeting in Kaduna in northern Nigeria. And there was tremendous uprising and people lost their lives as certain uh, radical Muslims uh, were, were, were attacking them. And you know what saved Reinhard Bonnke's life? They went straight to the best hotel, straight to the best room, expecting to find the man of God there. But oh no, he was staying with the team in a little, a little auberge, a little inn. And that's what saved his life. Interesting, isn't it? So we, I would have gone to the five-star hotel. I would have looked for a palace, only to be told it was the ancient city of David. But there ain't no palace here, mate. You've come to the wrong place. So they were probably anticipating this question, but the angel gave them the answer right away. This is the sign by which you will recognize him. The version that I had on the screen, which is the um, uh, new uh, revised version, and it's there, correctly translated, the sign. Most of our Bibles have a sign, but the definite article is there in the original. This is the sign. This is the one sign you are going to look for, and by this you will recognize the one about whom I've been speaking. And we shall see that the sign is in three parts. And, and whenever God gives a sign, it's not for mere convenience. Signs are more than signposts. They are that. They are more than signals. They are revelation. Every sign that has ever been given is a revelation of the heart and mind of God. That's why a sign given to some shepherds whose names we do not know 2,000 years ago, is relevant for us today because this will also be the sign for you to find where Jesus is. 
and where he's going to manifest himself and where he wants to dwell. This is right up to date, so, so listen up. Okay, what is the sign? Verse 12, this will be the sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Well, these are the details, uh, eyewitness details of people who can actually say, well, I was there, this is what was said. Look how specific God is when he speaks. So this is specific, but actually it's, it's revelation. It's not just, okay, you know, turn left, three doors on the right, past the pub, turn round by the church, go round again, round about second on the left, you'll find it. No, it's more than that. It's a revelation of who God is. It's a revelation of the ministry of Jesus Christ, and it's a revelation of where you should look for him in your life today. And it's not always in the expected places. Another reason I think the sign was given was it's so incredible so difficult to believe that the one who has just been called Lord, and by the way, the word Lord is not just master or somebody who belongs to the house of lords. The word Lord here is the word for God himself. Where will God stay when he visits? Where will he show up? Where will we find him when he's around? Well, it's not in all of those places that we might imagine. In fact, he will show up in places that if we're not careful, we'll miss him altogether because it's too different from the way we think. We're dealing with heaven's thoughts, not earthly thoughts. And so different was his appearing from all human expectation that they wouldn't have believed it unless they'd been told in advance. So the sign, as I said, it's threefold. First of all, it's the sign of a, a baby. That's the first sign, a baby. Well, well, that's obvious. We know the Christmas story inside out, a virgin shall conceive. We know that, the angel Gabriel, the Annunciation, and, and then uh, Elizabeth and Mary talking together, and we know all the story. But let's pause for a moment and remember again how absolutely amazing this is. Now, there are many reasons for him coming this way in the flesh, but the first thing we need to know is that God took upon himself full human nature. And there's no better proof of that than seeing a baby born. You have no doubt in your mind. It wasn't brought by the stork. It wasn't seeded by some faraway galaxy. This wasn't a visitation from an of, of angels or a visitation of, of aliens. He was born of a woman. So significant in Bible theology to understand that. So you find a baby. And the one thing you're going to see when you see a baby is you're going to know it's human. One of the Christmas songs we say we sing away in a manger, little Lord Jesus, no cry <coughs> no crying he makes. Hmm. Hmm. I know my grandchild ain't the Messiah. But I can't believe there's such a thing as a baby, no crying he makes. This is to remind us that God took on human flesh in the fullest way that we can imagine. In fact, he was so human that it was almost that he could never have been God. 
But he was so fully divine that almost he could never have been human. But bringing these two things together, we discover he is both divine and human. Remember, the angel said, the child that is born is the Lord. It's the word of the angel. Angels don't lie, unless they're the fallen angels. That's not my topic today. No, this is the Lord manifested in flesh. And I always go back as favorite passage. I have to fight not to refer to it every Christmas time. And I usually lose the battle. But it says the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And the word for flesh there, it doesn't just say the word was made a man. There's a word for that. The word man is a little, even a little too dignified here. The word was made flesh. And flesh in the Bible means many things. Here it's not talking about sinful flesh. It's talking about frail human flesh. How amazing. And there's a word from one of the songs, from the song there about uh, um, Holy Night. And every soul felt its worth. Wow. Are you looking for self-worth? Gaze into the manger. Are you wanting to feel good about yourself? Well, look to him because he feels good about you. And his coming into the world reminds every one of us of the worth, the infinite worth we have in his eyes. He came for us. So that's the sign, baby, part one. Part two, we see him wrapped in swaddling clothes. And again, it's an historical detail. I guess it was pretty common in those days to swaddle babies. Now, I don't know if you, everybody knows what's, what swaddling is. You know, you wrap the baby up, you look, the baby looks like a mummy. And it's all there like that, all wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, why would this be a sign? Is it just, a, okay, the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, that's it. No, but, but probably they all were. So why is, why is this especially mentioned? I think it has a significance deeper than we might expect. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, what's the most obvious is here we have the Lord of glory, God manifested in the flesh, but even in the flesh, he is subject to tight restrictions. Because he's fully human, he's subject to all the restrictions of humanity. And as far as I read the Gospels, Jesus didn't use his God bit, the divinity, in order to get out of difficulty. Even when he ministered supernaturally, he ministered out of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is Jesus laying aside voluntarily the use of his divine attributes in most occasions as far as I can tell. And limiting himself, self-restricting himself as a human being, subject to all the laws of humanity. Except one law because he was born without sin. Now here we have him limited. But then also it goes on, I think, to talk about the fact that he was bound by the constrictions and restrictions of the Mosaic law. Now you and I as Gentiles, I'm assuming most are Gentiles, if you are a Jewish believer, where God bless you. But we Gentiles, we, we never knew the tight restrictions of Mosaic law, 
Of course, we can identify with the moral nature of many of these laws. Think of the, think of the Ten Commandments, wonderful principles of how we're to give ourselves completely to God and to love and to serve one another. Of course, those are abiding, unchanging moral principles and moral values. However, there were many other laws which were not quite like that. Of course, they were all from God and all holy and had their place. But dietary laws, laws of clothing, if you've got clothing mixed with different fabric, you would be under the law, you would be condemned under the law. All kinds of things, dietary, ritualistic stuff. In fact, every single part of your life was governed by rules and regulations which you could, I suppose, be forgiven for calling restrictions. The Bible says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law. Jesus had a very special thing to accomplish. He went on to teach when he was teaching that I've not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus had to fulfill everything. Remember when he was baptized by John the Baptist? John said, hey, we got it wrong, mate. I sh you should be baptizing me. He said, no, let it be so for now, because it is right to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came to fulfill the law in every respect, so that when the time came, his righteousness... The fact that he perfectly fulfilled the requirements of God, not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, not just in deed and in word, but in heart and in mind. He fulfilled the law perfectly for our, on our behalf. What that meant was he qualified to be the sinless lamb and spotless lamb of God. He was without sin. In other words, in his humanity, in the flesh, he conquered sin right in its battleground. And therefore, we know it is possible to be holy and human. And we follow the one who can lead us out of our frailty and ultimately change ourselves to the, change us to the very extent we will be like him in his new glorified body. So Jesus was bound by the laws of humanity, bound by the laws of God. So he could identify with us. Meaning that he, is, he's, he sat where you, where you sit. Now, you may think, well, that's a bit uh, far-fetched because, I mean, after all, Jesus was a man. He lived 2,000 years ago. The culture was different, and he, didn't, he has not experienced in detail everything that I experience. Because your experiences and mine are unique. But when we go below, below the surface, we find that every principle at root level at root level Jesus has experienced everything that you and I go through as humans and as a result of that he is qualified to be our ever-living compassionate and faithful high priest to plead on our behalf in the presence of God this wonderful scripture Hebrews 7 verse 26 says for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So Jesus came and lived that holy life, the only one where even his enemies could say, we find no fault in him. They had to trump up the charges. I'm not talking about Donald Trump up the charges, but I don't know about that, but where that came from, but pray for him. 
uh, yes, and for everybody else as well. So we, we know that they could not prove him wrong in any way. At his trial, they had false witnesses. They contradicted each other. No, he was the innocent one. Even Pilate could see he'd done nothing wrong. So he identified with us in our weakness, in our humanity. He fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf, and he defeated sin in the flesh. I believe the sign of the swaddling clothes indicates all those things. But then finally, we find him lying in a manger. It's so familiar, but let's, let's defamiliarize ourselves a little bit. All those lovely, glossy, romantic Christmas cards go to the real place. I mean, you know, uh, uh, this, is, this is a feeding trough for cattle. And yet, Mary was disposed to improvise and use this cattle trough as a crib. I'm sure it was, you know, full of straw and I think, you know, but they, they improvised. <clears throat> and the situation was so serious, not even Joseph, the st his stepfather, not even Joseph had the time to knock up a quick crib. Can you imagine that? I reckon he could have knocked it up in very, no time at all. But the problem was, of course, he maybe didn't have his tools with him or just wasn't, he just didn't have time. So they improvised and used this cattle trough. Well, what does that tell us? He had the humblest of beginnings. And that humility of Christ is one of the characteristics. It's the, it's the driving force of the gospel. He humbled himself. And we know that the humility that was shown at that time was only the beginning. He was despised. He was rejected. And the Bible says he humbled himself unto death, even death on the cross. I think I am pushing it too far, but this, the, he was born in wood and crucified on the tree. Maybe there's some foretelling here in that picture but certainly the fact that he came in the humblest of beginnings meant that he was also and this to me is the most shocking mind-boggling thing of all he came in a form in which it was easy for people to ignore him to bypass him I mean, the angels had, to, the shepherds had to be told by the angels specifically that this would be the case. Otherwise, they, even they would have missed him. They would have gone all around Bethlehem, going to every house, looking at the baby, is the Messiah here, is the Messiah here. Most of them would say, you're crazy, move on. But they had to have this revealed so that they could identify him. And I would imagine all the people there in Bethlehem the high and the mighty, the rich, the powerful, the movers, the shakers. Maybe they were bustling around town. I nearly said doing their Christmas shopping, but it hadn't started yet. There they were. But they, they'd walk past this, maybe one or two. Oh, there's a baby crying there. Oh, somebody had a baby. Well, there we are. So easy 
to miss him. He is so capable of being ignored. Now, why is that? Surely, surely in our egocentric, uh, me, me society, we would know better than that. No, no, no. If you want to be noticed, you've got to gain people's attention. You've got to go straight to the media. You've got to perform all kinds of stuff that everybody will take notice of you. But no, no, no. He was born in relative obscurity. He was born in situations and circumstances that could easily be ignored or rejected. No, it's not possible. That, there, here, but this is a city of David. Yeah, well, there are hundreds of people here. Scores of babies maybe being born. Don't, don't point to this one and say it's different. No, no, no. Easy to ignore him. Now, remember that so important because many people say that God should make himself more obvious. I remember the atheist Christ, Christopher Hitchens who passed away a number of years ago. He was scathing when he would debate theists and Christians, he would give them what everybody called the Hitchin slap. He could slice them up with his words, slap them around with his words. It didn't matter whether he was arguing logically. Uh, often he was arguing emotively. I remember in one debate, uh, somebody was trying to get him to understand that the very concept of evil and the very understanding of that comes from the understanding of a straight line. And you need to know the straight line. And the only reason even atheists can recognize immorality and stuff which is wrong is because of the straight line in their hearts that God has revealed to them right from wrong. And so the, the debater was constantly saying, so tell me, tell me, Christopher, what is evil? What is evil? And he, this is how he ended the debate. Religion is evil. Everybody laughed and applauded, all the skeptics did. It was not an answer to the question, but it was a Hitchens slap. But I remember he was, he was interviewed shortly before his death. And uh, they asked him, you know, what if you die and you discover there is a God, what would you say to him? He said, I would ask him, no, I would accuse him. Why did you make it so hard to believe in you? Well, isn't a good question. The Bible says atheism is not a matter of the intellect. It's a matter of the heart. It's foolishness that prevents us. So here's God's way. Here is God's way. We might as well learn it. We haven't learned it already. God will not always do the obvious thing. He will do his thing. In fact, if we can predict what God will do, it's hardly likely to be God at all. Because his ways are higher than our ways, as high as the heavens above the earth. That's how high his thoughts are above our thoughts and his love. And there's just no way that we can actually think the thoughts of God unless God reveals them to us. And often what happens when God shows up, he will show up in a way where there's just enough offense so that those who want to be offended will have a reason to be offended. In the moves of God where we've been experiencing in recent decades and years, there's this saying going around that God, he will uh, offend the mind to reveal the heart. 
So sometimes we have to put aside our preconceptions and say, well, actually, the greatest mark of authenticity is what we see here in this sign. That's our God. And it gives hope for every single one of us. Because if he can live in that crib, be born in that crib, he can come to my life. He can come to my heart. I don't have to dress myself up in order for it to happen. Just open my heart to him. There is a, in the Indiana Jones series, I welcome young people here today and some of you, this might be the first time you listen, but anyway, in the Indiana Jones movies, I have it on good authority, I didn't re recall anyway, but Bruce, who is a student of these things, was able to let me know, remind me, it was in the film The Last Crusade. And I remember the scene very well, I can't remember the context, but the scene was Indiana Jones in, in the, you know, in the person of um, Harrison Ford, um, um, and he has to go into this cave kind of place in the mountains looking for the Holy Grail. That's based on um, myth and legend, you know, this is the cup of the Last Supper. Like the idea is not grounded in fact, but anyway, it makes a good story. And so he goes into the cave to try and find this, and uh, others had tried before, but they'd made the wrong choice. Because in this cave, there was a whole array of holy chalices, some silver, some gold, some decked with all kinds of jewels. And everybody thought, this must be the king's cup. But oh, good old Harrison, he knew better. And he reached round to the back and pulled out an old, battered-looking wooden cup. He said, this is the cup of a carpenter. Wonderful. And so sometimes, well, uh, Catherine Kuhlman used to say, God is not looking for silver vessels or golden vessels. He's looking for those who are available. And the, even the very best of us today, who might, others might think you've got more to offer God than the average person. We are all but vessels of clay, and yet we have this treasure in the earthen vessels. When it says God came, it means he came down to earth to sit where we sit. Another thing I think this is, is to actually show that God is on the side of the poor. He's on the side of the disenfranchised. I mean, this whole story, we could, we could write it up into a bleeding hearts presentation of Joseph and Mary, no room in the inn, pregnant woman on a donkey, and all that kind of stuff. And many, many preachers have pointed those things out. But what's the point of it all? Imagine if Jesus came with all the wealth and royal regalia of the richest on this earth. Then the rest of us, even the moderately well-off, let alone the people who are really borderline poverty, we would say he's not for us. He, he's for them. But if he comes and there he is sharing the humility of the poorest of the poor and being a man of the people, then he's available for everybody, even the wealthy, because all they have to do is humble themselves and kneel by the manger and later the foot of the cross. This is highly relevant today. Uh, um, you know, I looked it up. One percent of the world's richest people own 50 percent of the world's wealth. Take that in. One percent of the world's wealthiest own 50% of the world's wealth. I'm not going to insult you. I'm going to hope that you are here and think about doubling tithing for a month. 
And so money itself is not evil, but, but when it's based on the exploitation of others, we, we, we should be right there up top, and many of us are evangelical Christians, the fight against poverty. It's not just the prosperity preachers that hates poverty. God hates poverty because it deprives people of what is their due. But Jesus is saying, I know. I know what you feel. I know how difficult it is. I know that for many of you, there's too much month at the end of your money. I know that you have rude letters from your, from your bank manager. And, and for some reason, he loves red ink. And she loves red ink. Well, you say, listen, listen. The greatest wealth, and we need financial provision, and he knows, he knows that, okay. But the greatest wealth is not in the surroundings, but it's in the person of Christ. And we should never take Christ out of Christmas. I noticed um, a uh, marketing campaign by one of the leading retail chains here in Great Britain. And uh, I don't think they were doing it evilly or intentionally, but they managed in a clever way to take Christ out of Christmas. So they called it giftmas. Well, that's okay. That's okay. I'm sure they don't mean to be pagan and all the rest of it. But, um, and for a commercial company to put their, all their vested interest in gifts, we know why they do that. It's not because they're honoring God. It's because they're wanting to make as much money as possible this time of year. As I say, I don't want to insult that or insult them, but the point is, you know, to take, even to take Christ out and put gift there is, is going away from the mark because he is the greatest gift and, and he is at the heart of everything. He's at the center of it all and we cannot take him out. So whatever it is, don't miss him. The humble poor believe the rich can humble themselves and come, as indeed three of them did. Well, we, we don't know there were three, but there were three gifts, and these were royal, right royal gifts, the wise men that came from the east, right royal gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And God, even in the midst of poverty, can give you wealth and can give you provision. And when I say to you, God bless you with a prosperous new year, that's not a wish. It's a done deal. It's a done deal. God is on your side. And he knows, he knows you have need of these things. But I would say, summarize all of this, God speaks the language of shepherds. Shepherds would have understood this and they would have blessed him for it. So, as I finish, I want to say three things. First of all, if you're looking for him, look where you do not expect to find him. That's where you look. And where is he? He is with those who are suffering this first Christmas after the Grenfell tragedy. That's where he is. Where is he? Is he just here amongst us? And yes, he is here amongst us. But he's also with those who maybe just a few meters from here are spending Christmas alone. I'm not just talking about the, the singles and the lonely and the shut-in. I'm talking about anybody who does not know Christ. They are without God and ultimately without hope. That's where he is. That's where he is. He's with the people who've never heard. And how astonishing. 
here in, in, in London as I'm reaching out to people, making friends of people, not just on the fringes of the church, way outside. People who would never, ever, ever have any inkling to think about Christ in the way we do. He is there. I found him present. I found him gloriously present in the places where we might not expect him. Look where you do not expect. What about your life? He, he will show up in some surprising places. I don't even have to say that that's a prophecy. It's just a fact. He is going to surprise you. And sometimes in the difficulties and in the things you say, God, deliver me from this. He says, no, I'm not going to deliver you from that because I'm going to deliver you in that because I am going to show up in unexpected places in your life. Just at the lowest point when you think there is no, no hope, he's going to be there. The light is going to shine in the darkness. The presence is going to be felt in the loneliness. And in the things where you think God cannot possibly be there, he cannot possibly be in it, as Jesus appeared out of the storm, he will show up in surprising places in your life and you will worship him and say, my Lord and my God. Look where you do not expect. Secondly, as I finish, I want to say, use what you can. Use what you can. I don't know if that cow, uh, I'm talking about an animal here, I'm not being right. If that cow was able to speak, I wonder if the cow would say, go ahead, my lord, use my cattle trough. I don't mind munching from the ground to accommodate you. Now, if a cow can have its use and provision, okay, that's a bit silly, but you know what the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that God can use what you have, no matter how small, how insignificant, and however seemingly inappropriate. Oh, he can sanctify the humblest of things. Every Brussels sprout peeled and correctly pierced in the stem, according to the chefs on TV to make it cook right. Every single thing you do, every word of kindness, every time you put yourself out and do something you don't really like, feel like doing, but you're doing it because you're serving somebody else, he will be there. He shows up when you use what you can for his glory. And then finally, in this materialistic age, I've already spoken on the fact that God knows your needs. And he will definitely provide. I remember that and you remember that. But our heart attitude should make it, never make it, about money or worldly wealth or power. Yes, rise to the highest echelon of your ability and God's opportunity for your life so you can be in the highest place possible to shine for Christ. But do not make your career your worldly ambitions, the purpose of your life. Make Christ the child of the manger. Let him be your guide, your love, your heart, your passion, and the focus of your life.